there's no <clears throat> all right well before we get into um, this month's precept that Lori will take us through does anybody want to share any bodhisattva reports from the field <laughs> how things have been going anything you're noticing out there in the world as you apply the precepts in real life or anything you'd like to share that came out during your writing just want to open a little space to hear how it's been going before we jump into the bookwork rosemary she had her hand up first. I'll come to you, Fabian. Hi. Um, so um, let's see, I have a few things that I, I put in my observation um, uh, thing here. Um, well, one was um, in, in New York City, um, sometimes on the, on the highway, um, there'll be a um, homeless person who stands right on the 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 lane lines in between the cars, um, you know, um, asking for money. And um, so um, usually, you know, it's a little anxiety producing. You want to be sure you don't hit the person. Uh, usually we're not going that fast in New York City. Um, but, um, and uh, yeah, so my feelings were mixed you know um sympathy was one and repulsion was another and um so yeah as i thought about this this precept that we're working on um i began to uh kind of get money ready and um you know roll my window down and say something to the person so um so this precept kind of helped me to um, connect with this person. Um, and um, I don't always, you know, and, and, then, and then I'll be like, other times I'll be on my way and like, I don't see the person soon enough. So I don't have like money out. But um, that was a, you know, a really good experience for me to, um, you know, to connect um, with another human being that um, I would say, you know, I wasn't looking at in that way before. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. Fabienne, first, will you tell me if, I, if I'm mispronouncing your name? No, no, you're saying my name uh, correctly. Thank you, Todd. Okay. Um, I'm really grateful for the program, and maybe I'm still on one of the first precepts, but uh, for the awareness that it brings me, especially when I'm talking or being around my students in the classroom. And um, it, it, I don't know, it, I'm really great. I'm really thankful for that awareness that it, it's bringing me. Um, I just feel like the last month I haven't been such a good student. I feel like uh, my practice has a little slipped. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to be honest and report that. <laughs> okay. 
yeah, sometimes just avowing that, you know, out loud in public helps a little bit. We'll see. <laughs> Yes, John. You're muted, John. Yeah, unmute. As I sit and look at you, Todd and Lori, I just want to say I'm grateful that you're both taking the time to do this. And I don't know what I'm getting from it. I really don't. I struggle a lot, and I think I should. There's a lot of shoulds, and nothing seems to be doing what I think it, I should be doing. But thank you. Well, you know, Joker used to say that this practice changes you on the cellular level, right? On the cellular level. So you don't, and you, your opinion of it doesn't actually affect it too much. So whatever you think about it, uh, it's still working. Thank you. All right, if that seems complete, why don't we get into this month's precepts? All right. <coughs> Okay, so this month is the precept of I take up the way of taking only what is freely given and giving all, um, giving it all I can. So I have to say I'm really happy about joining you guys tonight and, and looking at this precept again. It's been a while since I've looked at it. And... Um, I'll just share a short story with you. I guess I should be embarrassed of it, but I'm not. <laughs> I uh, went to the park the other day, as I often do, and I was went with the idea of I was thinking about the altars. I was going to do the, uh, the flowers on the altars, and I was thinking of, oh, there's so much beautiful stuff out here. The Virginia creeper is turning, and all the trees are starting to turn a little bit, and I was, you know, so I was kind of had that in my mind as I was walking along. And then, of course, I saw these cypress trees. They were just, oh, my gosh. And it was pinkest rushed color. And I was just like, ah, these are great. These are perfect. And I walked over and snapped up a couple of branches. And as soon as I did them, I put them in my hands. And I went, oh, my gosh. I can't believe I did that. I can't use them on the altar. <laughs> Chapter, it's it's 
it's a little bit more subtle and um, uh, more complicated than just stealing. I mean, there's the stealing, I mean, you steal somebody's cars, you know, that kind of stealing. But then you have all sorts of uh, degrees or grades of what you might call stealing, or at least not taking what is um, freely given, or taking what is not freely given. I'm taking one. Yeah, right. That's what I meant. Okay, so, so, and those are, you know, just maybe cheating, cheating on your taxes, right? Or cheating on a test, or cheating on your partner, or embezzling, those are pretty serious cases. But then you get into, you know, pirating, pirating music, right? Somebody offers, oh, you know, I've got this new, they don't say records anymore, this new CD, and um, I'll make a copy of it. That's another similar case of taking advantage of something. It's freely available, right? But it's, you know, I don't know. It's cause for pause, because the person who made it is losing money. They're not getting the money that they deserve. And then paying bills for certain services you offer. <clears throat> and the, there's another kicker for me was the things that you, that are offered, you know, freely offered, and you can take what is needed, but it doesn't mean that you have license to take all that you can, right? So I'm talking specifically about the napkins and restaurants. Now, I don't know about you, but I go into the coffee shop and I load up on the... <laughs> People are gonna think I'm awful. I load up on... I have done this for years because I'm so messy. I'm always making a mess of the car, so I grab a bunch of napkins. But I talk specifically about that and then the sugars and the marmalades that you know, it costs the restaurant all that extra stuff that you're taking. They're not really providing it for everybody. <clears throat> they take as many as they can and just as you need. So there are those kinds of things. And then there's, you know, staying late for a long, a long lunch when you're in some work time or using the phone, the office phone for business, I mean, for personal, personal business. So, um, so it comes down to really the difference between, and this is a good thing to study, the difference between wanting and needing. So these things are offered, you know, in, 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 for whatever you need. But what is, what is, what is it that you really need? Um, so there are, in the case of natural resources, I love the fact that they put this in this book, this environmental side of it, that oil and gas, the situation of oil and gas is a limited resource, but it seems like it's just for the taking. And so we think sometimes, I don't know, um, you think, oh, I'm in the car, I'll just, I'll just drive over to such and such a place, but really you can, you can walk. There's really no need to take the car, but we often probably to save time as much as anything, right? Or it's raining. And so do we really need to do that? What does that mean using that extra oil that's not essential? So they're just things not to beat oneself up about, but just to consider, you know, is that what I want to do? Because some of the stuff is just habitual, right? You just do it and don't think about it. Or, you know, turning off the lights when you leave a room. That's wasted electricity. 
And what that means, you know, and it's all sorts of consequences. One thing it can use, cause the electric company to have to, you know, get more electricity, more use more resources, which can loads the pockets of certain individuals, the companies and the, the uh, investors. Makes them a lot of money, but then you have greater injustice, you know, it can go on and on and on if you follow it all the way through. So we forget these things, you know, about turning off the lights and stuff and not recycling paper and we put it in the trash instead. We forget, you know, we're halfway out the door before, you know, and, and our mind is just way ahead of us. And so we forget these things, we forget to do them. So it's, it's a good idea to just think about some of this stuff for one thing and also look in to start inquiring into what we think we don't have. What do we have and what do we think we don't have? What we should have and can we have it all? So that sentence really threw me. Have it all. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means. I guess, uh, yeah, that kind of threw me. I suppose in the 50s, I think it meant that you had a house and a picket fence and <laughs> a dog and a husband or a wife and kids. I don't know what that means. Anyway, um, but I think it probably means having more than just basic needs. So we look into why why we might be taking more than, than than we need to you know there was the the discussion in the book about a woman who in traffic <clears throat> or when she went to a parking lot and uh she was all the time she saw another car going for the par empty parking space i mean she just got it you know she tried to race him into it and then when she go um on, on the highway, if there was a space and somebody was headed for an empty space in front of her, she'd speed up, not let them in. And she realized that and she kept, she kept paying attention. And she realized after, I don't know, a couple of weeks after watching her behavior, that <clears throat> she also had similar behavior in her office where she was racing people to, um, to the elevator you know, to get on first. And she also raised people to the, to the coffee, uh, where the coffee was, to get a cup of coffee. And she talked about that and said, well, and I noticed she checked her body, was kind of practicing with it, and checked her body and said, well, <clears throat> that she was feeling a sense of urgency in the car and in these other situations. And on looking into that deeper, she thought maybe it was due to fear. But she couldn't figure out what the fear actually was. There wasn't seem to be a logical reason for her to be fearful. And yet she did this thing fairly consistently and she had been totally unaware of it before then. So she started paying attention and started to, to alter her behavior. She decided she wanted to do that. So she sometimes she'd let somebody else go in ahead. 
in front of her. Or she let somebody go first in the elevator, just to feel what that was like. And so, uh, and it was a really nice, it felt really nice to let somebody else. It felt, you know, like magnanimous or something, you know, something nice to do for somebody else. So it was just interesting that just paying attention to what, what one does, that one is other it's habituated and you're not aware of it. So and sometimes we have these uh, kind of habits and we wonder well where where does this come from? And part of it may come from a certain sense of of lack, or we may have a sense of we deserve more than we what we have. Life has not been kind to us, and other people have more than I do. So there are a lot of thoughts that we may have when we pay attention around why we, we have these habits. So there, the precept is what, what the precept is asking us to do is to meet these beliefs, these underlying beliefs, the assumptions, individual thought patterns that, that, are, that are fueling this insistence that we get what we want, this idea, no, I gotta be first, for example. So it's just interesting to pay attention to those. And one of the, one of the things that might be fueling that is this mind of attainment. Or what can I get out of this? <clears throat> so sometimes this sense of attainment, of striving for attainment, is comes from a certain belief of not enoughness or some sort of insufficiency or lack. We think that we're lacking something. And that leads to an idea that there is something to attain. So it's kind of a circular, circular way of thinking. Or we think, sometimes think that uh, something's missing and I have to make up for my lack. And so this might be fueled by this uh, belief of, belief in entitlement. As I mentioned earlier, being owed more than what I'm receiving. Or maybe a, a belief that life won't support you. That you're small, incomplete, powerless, vulnerable, or on your own. So, so again, this, this precept offers us the opportunity to meet the world and all those around us beyond these patterns of thinking and to recognize the generosity and abundance of life in the most ordinary gestures that occur in our daily lives. For example, someone letting you go first. Somebody did the nicest thing to me. It's just it's one of these little things. Um, I know what they did. I, uh, I was walking past them and I didn't know the person. They just had this huge smile and said hello. I mean, it's just a tiny thing, but it was just delightful. It was sweet. So there is a, a tremendous amount of abundance out there. 
We also have this um, idea of the, the parable of the spilt milk, right? So there's this story that they mentioned in the chapter about this woman has three little girls and she sends the first little girl off to buy milk. And she goes to the store and gets her pitcher full of milk and comes back and she trips on the pavement and spills some of the milk. And then she comes in saying, oh, my pitcher is only half empty, right? So the next little girl goes out to get more milk and she gets the milk and comes back, trips on the pavement and she comes in saying, oh, it's half full. And the two, half empty, half full, positive, negative. And then the third one goes out to get milk and she also hits that pavement, spills half of it, comes in and says, well, it's half full, it's half empty. Hmm. I think I'm going to call the city and have them fix that because we're all spilling milk. Which isn't that great. You know, it's, you can look at it and just have your opinion about it or you can do something to change what actually happened. So we know that words can matter in our speech and thought. And so there's a question about the, how we talk about, how we say sometimes, oh, um, I'd like to spend uh, more time with my, with my kids, but I get angry at them. So um, the way that that but is used is it kind of is an exclusory, um, it excludes, excludes the second half. It's like it's chopping off part of what the statement is. I like to spend time with my kids. But if you change it to and, I like to spend time with my kids and I get angry at it. It's not, as, it's not like you're taking away from the first thing. You're just adding another part to it. So we can notice in our speech if we're, if what we're leaving out around our experience. It's also in our perception, right? It's reflected in our language. So when you replace the but for an and, it'll clarify when you're closed off, excluding yourself from allowing gifts to flow forward and inward. So there's another aspect of this, um, of this taking, not taking what is freely given. This is another side issue. That sometimes we're offered things and we don't, we don't take them. Um, so for example, someone offers a, a compliment or praise and we say, oh no, you know, we don't take it in. And um, there's two parts to that. One is that we're missing, we're missing that, that nourishment, right? Offered by somebody, but offering you a compliment. Take it in, suck it up. It's, it's life flowing. Uh, they can also ask, offer love or help. Hello? 
She's in the meeting right now. Um, yeah, so love or help can be offered. I know I'll do that. A lot of people sometimes they'll offer to help and I'll say, oh, no, no, I could do it. And then it's like, it'd be so much nicer to have somebody working with me. <laughs> it's really nice. And I just automatically do that without thinking about certain thoughts. Then there's also the question of when one does that, um, how does that affect your ability to give things to other people when you when you yourself are turning them away, not to give them, but turning away gifts, is it harder for you to give gifts? How does it impact that? It's just a question to play with. So we may be, if, if, we're, if we're caught in our internal view of unworthiness about receiving a gift, do you think it could impact how you approach giving, uh, giving to others? What do you guys think? You have a thought about that? Could you repeat that, Lori? Sure. I said if you're caught in an internal view, if you're caught in an idea that of unworthiness about receiving a gift, do you think it could impact how you approach giving to others? And if so, how? Yeah, Joan. Oh, you're muted. I think it's on. Is that better? Yes. Okay. Well, today I did something differently, and it's related to that. Hmm. Usually I'm the one who has the ideas and how it should be done. And so Bill wanted to put, we were putting on the second blanket because it's now cold enough. And he had a certain way he wanted to do it. I didn't think that was the right way to do it. <laughs> but I said, okay, what do you want to do? So we did it his way. And I think he must have taken that as a gift, really. <laughs> said, That's fine. You know, I, I just had my mouth was shut. It was something new. Wow, Joe. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> It was obviously a gift to <laughs> not, not be right again. <laughs> I can see how that uh, mental poverty prevents me from contributing um, in taking um, and waking up to what you do on 117. It has this great passage where it says, if I basically perceiving myself as lacking or having nothing of value um, to meet situations with. It is this perpetual cycle of mental poverty and it gives rise to envy and desire and a closed heart. And I didn't think of a closed heart as being the outcome, but um, the example I always think of is my reluctance to contribute um, at the Sangha because I feel like everyone else is more spiritual and um, so I want to keep my substandard spirituality to myself. <laughs> um, I mean really it's it's absurd it's a catch-22 but um, it is a closed heart catch-22 because it's it's sort of unique to this environment whereas I feel more comfortable and confident in other respects 
um, you know, in my professional life and other social situations. But um, certainly there hasn't been a lot of forward progress with that attitude. I'm, I'm not free to give and um, that cycle of um, of giving and accepting it's it, you know it's just a closed loop yeah um yeah i think um the receptivity and the giving are definitely related because um um I think um, I think it's very hard sometimes to develop that receptivity, but um, I think that um, I'm losing my train of thought. That it um, oh that um, it's a rejection to um, not receive um, what's what's offered freely. So. Um, um, so how would that is that yeah because you're not so if you're receiving you're giving you're giving that your your receptivity to the offering is giving that to the offerer so yeah so that's that's how i think they're related thanks <laughs> yeah um, the way you said it just made this pop in my mind it's it's almost the you know, a physical example of someone, you know, stretching their hand out, right? And you just, you don't reciprocate, right? It's almost the same kind of thing. Like there's an offering there and you won't participate. I think too, it's a, it shows that it's a flow of, um, it gets to like, who's the, who's the giver and who's the receiver because it's an interaction, you know, kind of equal interaction. And to receive is is great, but then to give is really great. But it's dependent on the person receiving it, right? And if they were accepted or not. Lori, I don't know, but for for me, I feel like when I don't accept a compliment, it's because I feel less than. And then it makes me think that when I give in return, it's maybe not detached from... Um, I think I give, it comes from an open heart in a way, but I think unconsciously, I'm looking for acceptance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, that's what I noticed for myself. Yeah, there was a, a section in here that talks specifically about that. There was a woman talking, um, this woman was talking about um, yeah, but sometimes we, we about, um, 
you get approval in some forms from other people. I know it was about the thing about robbing people of their time or something like that, stealing people's time. And and it was saying that you know sometimes you you, you get one gets you know, one gets approval or disapproval from another person, and so it's not the giving, but it's still having that the other person be part of kind of plays a role in how we feel about us. But I wonder sometimes if it's not like a, a role play that has been ingrained for such a long time that you feel like, no, you, you're giving me a compliment. No, I'm not going to accept it. Because, I mean, that's the role you, I or other people have been playing for such a long time. You know, it's like, it's automatic. No, 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 I'm not worthy of that compliment. Yeah. But that implies I'm going to do things for others so that I'm recognized. So I think it's just like, like a scenario that has been created in the past and that you repeat. And, mm. and I think that's what the precept offers, is to be aware of that. But. Okay, so, so now we'll move to the um, giving freely of all that I can. So again, this is not as simple as it may seem. It's not just uh, giving charity. <clears throat> but as I was saying a minute ago, it's also about being generous with our time, our energy, our talents. And, um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting that little things like that are so important. Um, our time, particularly time, particularly these days, with oh, so many people are so busy, the gift of time, what, how meaningful that is. Have people just to hang with, not really be doing anything with. It's, it's really a wonderful gift. Um, or, you know, just having people just to... Um, you know, I, I'm very, very grateful to people who listen to my talks <laughs> before I get here. <laughs> I mean, practice, practice, practicing. practice talks. Yeah. <laughs> I value those people greatly. <laughs> so it's all these things of time and energy and, and uh, you know, this generosity that other people have for you is, are, are ways in which they're helping us in a way that you can't directly see. You can't see the benefit, but it exists. So true giving doesn't assign, doesn't assign value. So if we're, and then we talk a lot, sometimes we talk about merit, for example, or getting credit for something that you, you've done. Or I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get something and, and I think, well, what am I gonna get? What am I gonna get out of it? This person is gonna owe me. So it's really important when we're when we're doing things or offering people things to, to understand our underlying motives. Just pay attention to that. Sometimes we may not be aware of it. We think, um, gee whiz, you know, I did something for somebody, they didn't say thank you. Well, kind of implying it's not totally free. We do expect something. 
in return. So just, again, this is not something to beat ourselves up about what we do, but rather just be curious about what, what we do and the habitual things that we do. So if we are having any sort of internal reaction, when we've given something to someone um, other than joy, we know that there's a hook in there. We were wanting something. We weren't just freely giving it. It had some sort of attachment there, some sort of price tag. So when that happens, it's an indicator that we need to pay closer attention to what we're doing. <clears throat> and we open to all there is without, without any judgment, just paying attention. The last thing on this is the experiment of um, giving random, doing random acts of kindness. You remember when the bumps for stickers first came out with that? Uh, so you get a feel for it and, and know what it's like. Um, and I know I didn't, I, this, there was a woman that worked in a, in a thunderclap. I used to chat with her when I'd go buy my sandwiches there in the sandwich shop. And um, she was a woman, she was a musician at night, and then she worked at the restaurant during the day. Anyway, and so she said she really liked jewelry, but she couldn't wear anything but gold. So I ended up buying her some, some gold earrings. I mean, they weren't real expensive or anything, they were gold. And just for a kick, you know, I thought it would be kind of fun. And then, and then I was worried she didn't like me. I went into my own stuff, and I was worried she wouldn't like them. You know, was she wearing them? You know? <laughs> my life, but anyway, it's kind of fun to do things like that, just kind of as an experience, just for fun. <laughs> there was a guy, a guy, my mother and I, um, and her her friend, my mother, was, she's 99 now, I think she was 98 when this happened, and her friend from across the way that was 92, we went out to a restaurant, and we were standing out there looking for another restaurant, for this guy was there and offered to help us find this other restaurant. And he said, well, why don't you come here? It's a really nice restaurant. And I said, I know, but, um, well, maybe we'll do that. And he said, he said, well, go on in. And he said, I'll pay for it. And I'll be darned, he paid for the dinner for, we said we could have anything we wanted, wine, and the whole day would pay for all three of us. Now that's a random act of wow, wowness. My mother still said, we need to go back to that restaurant. <laughs> Once in a lifetime deal. <laughs> anyway, I digress once again. Okay, so so as we were saying just a second ago, um, giving and taking are interrelated, and both both sides are impacted. So I'm saying. So and yet at the same time, there's an emptiness around the giver, the receiver, and the gift, meaning. There's, there's no solid self there. You know, the, the giver is the receiver as well. The receiver is the giver, and the gift is the gift. That's a famous uh, chant in Buddhism, and particularly in Zen, that no, no giver, no receiver, no gift. No giver, no receiver, no gift, right? And, and that's a, a practice that some people do at different centers. 
um, I remember Shore, you used to do this all the time, but at the end of the day, he would, I'll get this wrong, I'm sure, but he would try and write down, you know, what did he give? You know, what did he receive during the day? And um, he said it, it, it very quickly became, you know, a big messed up jumble where he couldn't tell, you know, who, who gave and who received and what transpired, but it was, but it was grateful for almost all of it that happened. So anyway, there's a, we always point in Zen to the emptiness of the giver and the receiver and the gift that if examined close enough from a wide enough perspective, you really can't tell. Yes. So in the Buddhist teachings, there's a teaching, well, this is a teaching about how to give a pure gift. And the pure gift has no attachment, no strings and expectations. That's what I was referring to just a second ago. No expectation in the giving, no expectation in the receiving. Um, it's just freely given. <clears throat> so there's a chant. Um, May we with all beings realize the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift, which is what? Todd was referring to. That everything is given, everything is, everything is giving, everything is given. There are no separate givers, receivers, or gifts. All of life is always giving and receiving at the same time. This, our practice, and our joy. So we practice giving, both receiving and giving gifts in this spirit. So, <clears throat> What I was wondering is if, um, as you read this chapter, um, how did you work with the precept? Did you have some time to, to kind of play with it, some of the stuff? John. Well, I spent some time thinking about uh, there are a couple of people I know who are lonely people where I live mm -hmm. and wondering if I could do something and somehow do it so that I wasn't going to get any re recognition for it mm -hmm. so that that wouldn't be part of my goal. That's, you know, that's part of what we're talking about, how to do it without saying I'm going to get something out of doing it. Exactly. But the man is so, uh, I'm so uncomfortable with the man. It's very hard to do anything. He really is not a sociable person at all. He's very, very awkward. And he's so lonely. I just don't know what to do. But I don't want to do it and get recognition. So it's not clear to me how it's going to happen. But that's one thing I'd like to see, how to give without getting recognition for something. Wonderful. Hmm. And what if you can't avoid it? What, getting recognition? Yeah, what if you can't avoid getting recognition? Is it not worth giving them? Well, I guess that's not the worst part. It's just spending time with him that would be the hardest part. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, the, the other hard part was that once I do it, I know he would just rely on me because he doesn't have any friends. And so 
I'm really not that generous at this point. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for a, a more of a baby step in there. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to reflect on it, I'm sure. Well, I, I was nice to him one time, and he kissed me on the cheek, and I thought, we've got to have this clear. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't, I can't jump into the deep end of the pool yet. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, so my... Um uh, there was a leak in the apartment, well, the apartment below me. So the super came in and, uh, you know, they had to work on it and figure out why it was leaking into the apartment below. And they figured it out. They were here for about an hour, an hour and a half. And um, they left. And I thought to myself, you know, are you supposed to tip the super when they do their job? And then I thought, what does that matter? I can do what I want to do, right? So um, I wrote them a note, a thank you letter. And um, I did put a little tip in there, and I just said, you know, it's not Christmas, it's not a lot, and I know I don't have to, but I really appreciate you taking good care of us, you know. And he is. He's a great super. He has a great attitude. And um, anyway, you know, so I just forgot about what the custom was, and I did what I wanted to do. So um, that felt felt nice, yeah. Because we, ta we take so much – I mean, I – take so much for granted in in life and who's who's there to take care of us you know every day all the time thank you Okay, so I guess that's about it. Um, there's the last section of this about putting it all into practice, and as I mentioned along along the way, it just begin to observe what you take, what is not freely given, um, that you may take more than you need, perhaps, and it can can, can be kind of difficult, and it takes just takes some time and pause and. And um, so you can discern what's going on. And check in with the body, you know. The body always can give you a lot of clues as to what's going on behind, behind, the, behind the scenes and what your thoughts are. You know, if there's a habitual one in particular, something that you tend to do. So, okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Mm -hmm. All right, our next topic, right use of power. So um, show of hands, has anyone heard about right use of power in other areas of the Sangha or anywhere else in life? Okay, so Heather has. So this is one of those um, kind of supporting topics that Peg and Flint began to introduce probably a decade ago. Um, it's, it's based on a, a work done by a woman named Cedar Barstow. And her book, let's see, ooh, I can do that. Power, share, screen. So 
Um, the book is on the website, so let's see, Safari. On our, that's not it, on our precepts program page, down at the bottom, there it is. Right use of power, the heart of ethics. Cedar Barstow. So I'll start with reading an introduction that um, Peg's written on this that she uses in this class sometimes. And Peg is also a uh, trained facilitator in right use of power. So she conducts these workshops for teachers, sanghas, educators, uh, psychotherapists on occasion around around the country. Power is the capacity to have an influence, affect a change, or transform situations. A common misunderstanding associates power with unwanted oppression, control, and violence. However, power can also be expressed as wanted and enabling responsibility guidance, support, empowerment of others, and care. It can reflect core values of compassion, wisdom, clarity, and connection. Like any form of, of energy, power can be used skillfully, consciously, responsibly, and with care, or carelessly, selfishly, and destructively. We are often ignorant of our own power or unskillful in its use because we have not been taught how to use it appropriately. We're also suffering from experiencing or witnessing abuses of power, large and small. This makes us afraid of power or, alternatively, grasping of it. We can learn how to use our power skillfully and appropriately. We can learn to meet the power of others skillfully and appropriately. In situations involving power dynamics, we can cultivate more humane and intelligent power relations in the service of the larger good. Our clarity around the use of power is often complicated by special, overwhelming mind states, including non-ordinary states and shame. I would add terror and scarcity to this list of overwhelming mind states. These mind states prevent us from accessing either our own wisdom and self-care or the supportive resources around us. They create barriers to connection and care and cloud our judgment. We all need skillful, compassionate help from others when we are captured by such mind states. Feedback is a critical component of learning to use our power skillfully and with heart. Without it, we're generally blind to our impact on others. We need to learn how to request feedback, how to integrate it, and how to provide it for others in ways that nourish and support their learning. The capacity to deal appropriately with shame is essential to this work. 
Mistakes in the use of our power and our response to others' power are inevitable and unavoidable. Fortunately, these mistakes can afford an opportunity for us to deepen trust in the relationship and foster honesty and intimacy through skillful repair. Our mistakes are humbling, but the skills for repair can be learned. Our lives as social beings mean that the dynamics of power will always be part of our human experience. We have the power of creativity, courage, compassion, connection, care, wisdom, clarity, energy, generosity, vision, and their opposites. The unskillful uses of power have been abundantly demonstrated over millennia with each other, with other species, and with our planet. We're in our infancy in studying the appropriate uses of our human power. We have the capacity to evolve more mature and wise uses of power that support all life on the planet and provide care for all beings. But time is running out. We need to learn faster and more comprehensively how to use our human power in globally beneficial ways. We are the seeds of this evolution. And she ends, peace, harmony, and the life-sustaining world depend on the appropriate understanding and use of power, not only by our leaders, but by every one of us. Peggy Syverson. So we've introduced uh, the right use of power at Appamata um, because it's seen as part of the core or the heart of ethics. Uh, as part of our relational practice to be aware of the ways that we influence each other, of the effect that we have in our relationships, in our surroundings, and on the planet. Again, she opens with the first line, power is the capacity to have an influence, affect the change, or transform situations. Right, so it's good to consciously come at power and to learn the ways that we have influence, many of which may not be conscious. Right? It's an often uh, a reaction to the discussion of power is for people to say, oh, well, you know, that's not me. I don't have any power. Right? Does anybody kind of feel that? Like, did that come up? Yeah, not me. Maybe, uh, maybe political leaders, someone in higher positions, but not me. I tell you what, personally, um, the more I've done this practice over the years, the more I see the impact that I have in all kinds of little situations where there's no, you know, I'm not a boss, I'm not a worker, I'm not an employee. Just, we have a lot of influence. Your presence in the way you conduct yourself in every interaction has the ability to influence the situation. You have power, whether you realize it or not. Now, there are varying degrees of power. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay? 
definitely um, we can have a lot less than, than others in some situations, but it is there. And learning to recognize it and to bring it into consciousness and to set an intention and use it skillfully is a gift that we can give. So here at Aquamata, we like to acknowledge it. We like to talk about it, um, to bring it to the forefront, to discuss the ways in which there might be power differentials in the roles that we play, maybe in the experience that you have. Um, you, uh, we get new people that, I'll say it like COVID isn't happening, you know, that wander into the Zendo for the first time uh, and are a little unsure about themselves or how to conduct themselves. Do I bow? Do I sit? What do I do? And they are immediately and always influenced by anyone that they think has been here a little bit longer than they have. <laughs> right? Every person in the Zendo who it isn't their first time there has power over them, whether they know it or not, right? Because they're going to follow along. They're going to imitate, they're going to look around. Um, it's a real phenomenon whether we believe it or not. And so we study right use of power. We, we make it a point in most of the councils in Alphamata that normally, normally the councils, uh, you know, they, the councils exist to help support the Sangha and to have a, a more outwardly focused practice, but they also exist to um, provide a scaffolding and a way to deepen practice for the people that are on the councils. And one of the ways that that's done is by picking a particular, you know, Dharma topic or study uh, to participate as a group and do a little bit of learning over the years. And normally the first thing that every council starts with is the right use of power because we think it's so important. So, with that as a preamble, we're going to give you a very quick little primer on right use of power in only 10 or 15 minutes. And then what I'm pulling from is a handout that I put a link to on the website uh, earlier today or yesterday. I can provide the link here for you in a minute. So you don't have to write anything down if you don't like. So the right use of power, we begin by talking about its foundational values. So before we get into the types of power, the foundational values. In affirming the right use of power as the heart of ethics, uh, we're framing ethics and power in a more comprehensive way. And these values form the foundation for its right use. And these foundational values are Aspirational, relational, heartful, reparational, as in repair, reparational, proactive, experiential, and visionary. So we start with aspirational and begin by acknowledging our desire and capacity for magnificence 
in the use of our personal and professional power. Supporting and engaging this desire accesses what's called the social engagement system. This is according to the work of Stephen Forges, what he calls a third nervous system, the social engage engagement system. The social engagement system has a capacity for self-correcting, complex problem solving, expressing a large range of emotion, and staying in a relationship, even in conflict. Staying in a relationship, even in conflict. This supports our, our uh, aspiration for our use of power. The second value is relational. Ethics and power are all about how we treat others by our attitudes and our behavior. Relationships are what make ethics necessary. Relationships are most effective and grievances are avoided when we are able to resolve problems and repair connections. Third, heartful. Right use of power is the heart of ethics. Empathy and compassion can inform often complex and challenging situations so that both caregivers and clients will be empowered to self-correct and grow into more sensitivity. The development of compassion as being an ability to imagine and feel the connection between everyone and everything everywhere is the salve for wounds and separation and the inspiration and motivation for those who are in positions of power and trust. We can source our power with heart. Fourth, reparational. <clears throat> we all make mistakes. Our impact is often different than our intention. I think this is, for me personally, one of the most important things I have learned. Um, and not, not just here at Appamata or in Buddhism, I just mean at all. To start to separate intention from impact. Well, what's the old saying? I always say we measure, we measure others by their impact and we measure ourselves by our intention. Our impact is often different than our intention. We often automatically and habitually, habitually link present conflict with past trauma. When conflict trigger, triggers old trauma, we may disengage from relationships. Approaching ethics and power reparationally, we can put our attention towards skillful resolution relationship repair, and self-correction. Fifth, proactive. Responses to issues of power and ethics can be unconscious and history-based, littered with automatic behavior and outdated beliefs. By actively exploring our ethical edges, asking for and using feedback constructively, we become more sensitive. We can increase our skills, change ineffective habits, and use learnings from our history to grow. 
Focusing on proactive right use of power takes ethics to a deeply refined level. Experiential. Having a felt sense of the impact of the power differential is the key to understanding professional ethical issues. Experiential study is the most effective method of learning. Ethics, power dynamics, and compassion are best embodied through personal, practical, and engaging experience. The vision for right use of power. Power is the capacity to initiate change. Influence is the realized potential for change. The spiraling journey to mastery in the use of power and influence is numinous and potent. It brings together personal development and soul work with the creation and accomplishment. Finally, those who learn to use power consciously, caringly, and skillfully are familiar with their code of ethics or precepts and with contemporary ethical issues. They've done personal work with their power, history, and beliefs, are willing to be held responsible for their behavior and can self-correct. They know how to track and for and resolve difficulties whenever possible. And finally, and most importantly, right use of power and influence can be learned. So with those foundational values as a backdrop, we'll get into Cedar's, um, Cedar is the woman who wrote the book, Cedar Barstow's, three kinds of power. Three kinds of power. So there's personal power, role power, and status power. For me, this is where it gets to be a little bit more interesting. You start to break it down. As I said in the beginning, we often feel like, oh, well, I don't have any power or influence. But when you start to look at the different categories, you start to realize that there's different um, aspects of power perhaps we weren't considering. Personal power. Personal power is our birthright. It is our individual ability to have an effect or have an influence. It is accompanied by the inherent human right to be treated with dignity, respect, and fairness. It's always present, but we can be more or less aware of it or have more or less access to it. We can learn to use our personal power better in both up power and down power roles. So you'll hear that term a lot that we haven't explained before. It's pretty obvious, but um, in any, say, you know, any relationship, there can often be a power differential where someone has more power and someone has less power in that particular environment or in that particular situation. And the people in those different roles or different dynamic power dynamics have different responsibilities as we'll get into. 
Personal power comes in many forms, including the power of communication or articulateness, presence or charisma, and creativity. So everyone has personal power, right? All to varying degrees, but it's your birthright. You have the ability to influence. You can make an impact. Second is role power. Role power or positional power is earned, awarded, elected, or assigned. She calls it a power add-on. So everyone has personal power, but you may inhabit a particular role as a teacher, a therapist, a parent, a spouse, a crossing guard, what have you, right? That the role conveys some power in a particular situation. Role power is separate from our personal power. It automatically accompanies any position of authority. Um, in my example of a new person walking into the Zendo, if you're an experienced practitioner, right, you have role power. As an experienced practitioner, inhabiting that role, maybe your monitor, maybe your timekeeper, your actions are going to have more influence over that person than someone who's not doing that role. That's a small example of role power. Role power carries an increased or expanded amount of power and responsibility. Up and down power dynamics create the need for ethical guidelines, since those who are in the down power are more vulnerable and at risk of harm. And examples here, doctor, nurse, coach, employer, elected official, chief executive officer. And the third category is status power. Status power is enhanced personal power and influence that's culturally conferred. Status power brings privilege and has its own impact and influence. It entails responsibility, dynamics, and influence that often go unrecognized. The impact of status power is often more subtle than role power. Those with high status power are often unaware of this fact. Status power depends on cultural values, thus it, must, it may change from culture to culture. So status power, examples of status power are age, social class, wealth, race, ethnicity, education, gender, physical appearance, religious affiliation, right? These are culturally conveyed, right? So um, particular gender, race, ethnicity, social class, being part of, you know, a, one of those groups may convey to you more status power than someone not in that group, not because of a role you have, more just because of the, uh, the status of those groups. So it is more subtle. And um, often people in those privileged status power positions would be less likely to notice the power that they have or 
to be aware of it as someone who, say, is a policeman and has a role, or a mayor that has a role power. So those are the, the three types of power. So you've got personal power that everyone has, role power that's earned, awarded, elected, or assigned from a role you have, and status power, something that's culturally conferred, a privilege based on cultural status, you could say. Any questions about those? I think it's helpful just to kind of break them into categories and start to think about them separately to see that how our power may change as we enter in different situations from one aspect of our lives to the other, from work to school to our spiritual center to the, the street or the sidewalk, right? Our power can always be changing or influenced by the, the hat we put on, the role we have, or our status in a particular group. So there's four dimensions in the right use of power. Dimension one is the guided use of power. Dimension two is the conscious use of power. Dimension three is the responsible use of power. And dimension four is the wise use of power. So we broke power down into three categories, and now we're going to um, break its usage into these four dimensions to help us think about them. So dimension one, the guided use of power. This dimension is about guidance of many kinds. Owning and having a felt sense of the impact of the power differential role its potential, its responsibilities, its distortions, and its vulnerability for those in down power roles as the basis for all ethical guidelines. Understanding and being guided by inform information contained in ethical codes as they are wisdom culled from the lived history of our professions. Tracking your impact gathering effectively using information from clients and students, paying attention to inner guidance and humanistic and spiritual values. So this dimension one is the guided use of power, owning your role power and tracking your influence, using ethical guidelines as your moral compass, and working with the dynamics created by the power differential. In this dimension, in this guiding the use of power, our focus in this dimension is on information. Understanding our power differential, our role power. Gaining information by tracking your impact on people, asking for feedback. So the guided use of power in dimension one, the focus is on information. 
Dimension two is the conscious use of power. We need to be compassionate and aware. This dimension is all about self-awareness. The focus area for dimension two is self-awareness. You need to understand and learn from your attitudes, beliefs, your personal wounds and habits in relation to issues of power and authority. To be curious about yourself and your clients. Exploring your empowered and disempowered selves and how your use of power and influence affects others. So in dimension two, the conscious use of power, we engage our curiosity in our history and we use it. We stay present and receptive. And we attempt to infuse power with heart. Practicing compassion as a resonating concern for all. So that's two, the conscious use of power with the focus on self-awareness. Dimension three is the responsible use of power. The responsible use of power. This focus area on dimension three is on relationship. In this dimension, the focus is on relationship. Increasing skillfulness and tracking for difficulties and staying current in caregiving relationships. Recognizing that your impact is often different from your intention. And this is an important one, the 150% principle. Being guided by the 150% principle of greater responsibility held by the person in the up power role. So this is one of the keys of Cedar's work is that when there's a power differential and you have either role power or status power over someone else in a down power role, the person in the up power role has 150% responsibility for how things go. The person in the down power role also has 100% responsibility for how things go, but there's a, a recognition that by definition, the fact that there is a power differential confers upon it greater responsibility. Dimension three, with the focus on relationships, recognizes that we all make mistakes. Understanding how relationship difficulties, when either ignored or dismissed, can escalate to grievances. In this dimension, we practice staying connected, even in conflict, and using conflict to clarify and resolve difficulties. And attending to relationship repair using apology effectively. So dimension, dimension three is the responsible use of power. Its focus is on relationship. And last, dimension four, is the wise use of power, being skillful and proactive. In dimension four, the wise use of power, the focus is on skill. 
understanding that doing the right thing is more effective when it's done wisely. It's deepening skill and identifying tendencies, beliefs, and barriers that may make you vulnerable to specific misuses of power. The why is reflecting on examples of misuses of professional power and learning about the shadow aspects of increased power. Practicing sensitive and skillful down power influence. Practicing and refining the skills of asking for, receiving, giving, and using feedback. So this is an important one, right? As we talked about the difference between intention and impact, the only way you're going to know the difference as the person with the intention is to ask and find out what the impact was. So we practice and refine the skill of asking for, receiving, giving, and using feedback. So those are the four dimensions of power. And again, the three kinds of power were the personal power that we all have, the role power that's awarded, elected, or assigned based on the role we have, and then status power, which is culturally conferred, a privilege that has its own impact and influence. Often, we aren't aware of it. So in the Right Use of Power book and the handout that um, we'll provide, there's many you know, kind of discussions and um, writing exercises and little experiential trainings that we can take on to start to uncover um, the ways in which we have power that maybe we were not aware of, right? And how we can start to enter into these four dimensions and its wise usage in our everyday lives. I think the last thing I'll cover here, we're almost out of time, is just some differences in role differences and responsibilities. So this is just a summary of role differences with their responsibilities and liabilities. We recognize that all are equal as human beings and have personal power and deserve to be treated with dignity. But assigned roles come with increased power influence. These relational impacts that accompany a power difference need to be understood and taken into account. So they're presented as little dyads. And this, is, this will be in the handout for the little table here. So the person in the up power role is ultimately responsible for the whole or a larger part of the job, project, or service. They're in service to the clients or students. They may take action on the down power person's behalf. The person in the down power role is responsible for his or her part of the job, project, or service. It receives the services agreed upon. The person in the up power role has increased power and influence due to their responsibility. 
The person in the down power role has decreased power and is more vulnerable to being rejected, exploited, shamed, taken advantage of, abused, oppressed, disrespected, or manipulated. The person in the up power role must demonstrate trustworthiness and earn trust. The person in the down power role may either assume trustworthiness or test for it. The up power role is recognized for expertise, training, or skill. The person in the down power role may receive lower pay or less deference than up power colleagues. The up power role sets and maintains appropriate boundaries. The person in down to power role obeys or challenges boundaries as circumstances dictate. The person in the up power role is expected to provide feedback and direction. The down power role risks loss or humiliation by giving challenging feedback asking for change, or being assertive. Right, so we start to get a feel for, uh, I think, you know, what we all know or experienced, especially in our working lives, probably, or in our uh, educational lives as being a student, or maybe eventually a teacher, right, that these power differences exist, and that they have different responsibilities. And the right use of power is just the ongoing uh, process of bringing these forward into consciousness and examining our impact and influence, understanding our intention, and trying to use it skillfully in the world. So I highly recommend you spend a little time to take a look at the right use of power Perhaps in one of our next classes, we can do a little bit of an experiential exercise. I know that was very kind of quick overview. Any questions or comments about that? I think this is useful, useful material for our everyday lives. All right, well, it's late, it's 8.55, we've had a long time together. Once again, I had the idea of, of uh, trying not to take all the time and get you out here a little early, but uh, we always have so much rich material to cover, so thank you very much for your attendance. And next month we'll have the month off. Not the month off from the precepts. We're just not meeting. <laughs> and I would give you license to go steal all December long. <laughs> all right, so I hope everyone has a lovely Thanksgiving. And thank you so much to Lori for joining us and bringing her uh, take on the precepts. It's great to have you here. Thank you both. Thank you all. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.